and welcome to the Diction Police. I'm your host, Ellen Rissinger, an American vocal coach accompanist on the music staff of the Zemperoper in Dresden, Germany. Today we'll start talking about French diction with Nathalie de Montmolin, a soprano from French-speaking Switzerland. But then we'll be going off-topic for an interview with Philip Shepard, author of What the Fach, the Definitive Guide for Opera Professionals in Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. This book is the most useful resource I know to answer any and all questions about moving over to Germany, from auditioning and agents to finding an apartment and dealing with all the red tape. We'll talk about the book and also about what it's like to work in opera in Germany and the U.S. You'll notice that this episode is a little longer than usual. I wanted to make sure that we got a diction lesson in, and then there was so much useful information in what Philip had to say that I really wanted to keep as much of that in as, as I could, too. So please forgive me for going well over the half hour. First, a little French diction. French is probably the least phonetic language that we sing in, and without a good basic knowledge of French grammar and spelling, it's almost impossible to be sure how to pronounce anything. If I've counted correctly, there are 16 different vowel sounds, even more according to some sources who've split the letter E into seven gradations, and there are about a zillion rules about liaison. So today we're going to ease our way into French with two forêt songs, Mais and Après un rêve. If you don't have the music for these pieces and want to follow along, you can find the texts for them at recmusic.org slash leader, L-I-E-D-E-R, or follow the link at the blog at thedictionpolice.com. Don't forget the the. We'll start with identifying some vowels and their spellings and a few of the basic rules of liaison. Our first text today is mais, which means may. The poet is Victor Hugo, who also wrote the classic novels Les Miserables and The Hunchback of Notre Dame, among many other works. Mais de Victor Hugo. Puisque mai tout en fleurs dans les prés nous réclame, viens, ne te lasse pas de mêler à ton âme la campagne, les bois, les ombrages charmants, les larges clairs de lune au bord des flots dormants. Le sentier qui finit où le chemin commence, et l'air est le printemps, et l'horizon immense. L'horizon que ce monde attache humble et joyeux, comme une lèvre au bas de la robe des cieux. Viens, et que le regard des pudiques étoiles, qui tombent sur la terre à travers tant de voiles, que l'arbre pénétré de parfums et de chants, que le souffle embrasé de midi dans les champs, et l'ombre et le soleil, et l'onde et la verdure, et le rayonnement de toute la nature, fassent épanouir comme une double fleur, la beauté sur ton front et l'amour dans ton cœur. That was May, read by Nathalie de Montmolin, and we get started by talking about the letter I. It can either be pronounced as the phonetic letter E, which is the lowercase i, or if it's followed by the letters N or M, sometimes can become an E nasal. In a word like fini, le sentier qui finit, ou le chemin commence. Okay, so we have the I in fini, and that's always E. And the same thing with midi. But you heard mm -hmm. right after fini, we have chemin. Mm -hmm. And there we have an I too. So this is where knowing your French spelling is very important. Why, why do we pronounce those two as E and not as a nasal? 
Parce qu'il y a une voyelle après le, le N. Because after that N, there's another vowel, so it, it can't be the nasal. But then we have two words, three words later. Chemin, le chemin. It's the N nasal. Le chemin inconnu. But you can hear how that... that that's printemps, the, printemps. So you can hear how that N nasal is. With the nasal, it's either an N or an M sometimes, right? So mm -hmm. if there, we don't have any words in this song, but it can be an M. But we have l'horizon immense. Immense. So if there's two M's or two N's, there's also the possibility that it's going to be the E. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oui. Mais le, ce qui serait important de dire, c'est que le son 1 peut s'écrire de beaucoup de façons. It's, it's important to say that the N nasal can be written in many different ways. I-N. I-N. A-I-N. A-I-N. E-I-N. E-I-N. So this is what I was saying at the beginning, that unless you know all the rules of spelling of French, this can be, it can be a very difficult topic to learn. So we have, we have three kinds of E's. We have a closed E, an open E, and the, the okay. E. So we have a closed E in cases where you have the accent aigu, which is that the accent starts from the bottom left and goes up to the right. Puisque met tout en fleur dans les pré nous réclame. Mm -hmm. Mais le problème ici, c'est que dans le langage parlé, suivant les régions, si on est à Paris, si on est à Bordeaux, si on est au Canada, ou si on est en Suisse ou en Belgique, on va parler ça un peu différemment. Mm -hmm. Donc moi, qui viens de Suisse, je vais dire euh, dans les pré nous, ré, nous réclame. Réclame. Mm -hmm. Mais en fait, c'est un réclame. So what she's saying is that in spoken language, depending on where you're from, people aren't necessarily as specific about, about speaking it as correctly as we are about singing it. So where she's from, which is French Switzerland, she would say réclame with an mm -hmm. open E there. But she knows that when she sings it, it's got to be a closed E. But then we do have the open E. And just mm -hmm. from the title of the song, we get that mais. Le mois de mai. But mais is spelled M-A-I. So mm. A-I can make an open E. Mm -hmm. Also, an E with circonflex, which is that little carrot top on mm. top of it. Mais lire à ton âme. Exactly. So you can hear how that, um, how that circonflex is an open E, but then it's followed by a closed E. E-R, c'est toujours E. Aller, danser, manger. Because an E-R is always a closed E. E sound, closed E. À la fin du verbe, à la fin at the, du verbe. At the end of a verb, at the, especially the infinitives, at the voilà, end of infinitives. Voilà, parce que si c'est à l'intérieur, ça dépend de ce qu'il y a après. If it's in the middle of a word, it can depend on what comes after the R. And also, the other thing that can open an E is an... Lèvre. Oui. Exactly, is an accent grave. Mm -hmm. Comme une lèvre au bas de la robe des cieux. Un élève. On a, on a les deux, on aura élève. A student. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's what you can see. actually in the word for student, élève, then you have the two accents back to back. You have the accent aigu, which makes it close. The accent aigu is the one that goes from left, bottom left to upright. And then the second one is the open one, the accent grave, which starts from the top left and goes down. So, un élève. Exactement, un élève. I just wanted to talk a little bit too about liaison. I mean, like I said, there are a zillion rules for liaison. And I want to sort of, as we find them, try to explain them so that it's not like trying to remember 18 rules. We'll just talk about them as they come up and hopefully they start to sink in. Liaison is when you have a word 
that ends in a consonant that normally would not be pronounced, but it's followed by a word that begins with a vowel. So a liaison is when you actually do pronounce that silent letter at the end of the word. In the first sentence, we already have one. Puisque mets tout en fleur. And that's, that's an obligatory liaison. You have to say mm. tout en fleur, right? Mm. Oui, oui. Tout is a single syllable that always takes liaison. Tout en, tout en fleur, tout entier. Mm -hmm. So you always elide that one. The word itself, if we didn't have the en fleur, what's that word? Mm. Tout. So you hear she wouldn't say the T at the end of tout. Mm. Tout voilà. Et puis, après, juste après, viens, ne te lasse pas de mêler à ton âme. Yeah, in the second sentence, you can hear, de mêler à, so the R at the end of mêler becomes spoken, mêler à. Mm. The infinitive, when it's followed by a preposition that relates to it, well, the R at the end of the infinitive will also take the liaison. But it's, it stays, the, the A out before it stays closed, right? It would never... Mais, yeah, oui, oui. Okay, here we have, the, the rule is that its liaison is required between the determiner of the article or the adjective and its noun. So we have ton, your, um, soul. Ton, ton um. Does this sound stay nasal or does it lose its nasality? Non, non, ça reste ton um. So it's still, it's still a nasal and then it just connects with the end. Seulement, à cause de, du A, on va entendre ce N, sinon on l'entendrait pas. Yeah. Ton chien, on n'entend pas de N. Yeah, so it's only, we only say the N because of the A that follows it. If you say your dog, ton chien, chien, because it starts with a consonant, then the ton doesn't take an N, doesn't get mm -hmm. to say then. I do, I do want to say one thing in uh, the Bernac book. If you look in Pierre Bernac's The Interpretation of French Song, he connects uh, et l'air et le printemps et l'horizon immense. But Nathalie didn't. And I find it really interesting that he does, because in doing a hopeless amount of research on this, I, what I found online and in all of my books is that liaison is forbidden between a singular noun and the adjective that comes after it. So to say l'horizon immense is technically against the rules. But it's in the Bernac book. So I'm not saying Bernac is wrong, I'm just saying it's, it's an interesting thing to note. Alors moi, je, dir, je, je ne dirais jamais hein, l'horizon immense. Yeah. Pour moi, quelqu'un qui dit que c'est vraiment une faute pour moi. Yeah. She would never say that she, that would actually be a, a, a mistake, a complete mistake. Absolument. Yeah. Je dirais l'air et le printemps et l'horizon immense. So the last one we have that's that it's an optional liaison is you can have an optional liaison between two part verbal structures, which can be anything from a verb followed by uh, an infinitive or the compound verbs like je suis allé. Mm -hmm. But here we have one in the second to last sentence. Face d'épanouir. Because the, the verb is face. Faire. Ça vient de faire. Exactly. It comes from to, it comes from to make or to do. Mm -hmm. And then we have that third person plural construction. That, <laughs> then we have the mute e that drives us all crazy. Mm -hmm. um, But then because the next verb is the infinitive that goes with it, then we can connect those two, the T and the E. Mais dans le langage parlé, on va pas faire cette liaison. On va pas dire face épanouir, on va dire face épanouir. So, she, so when you speak it, you would never say that. But when you sing it, you would, right? Alors ma solution que j'ai pris pour, pour cette air là c'est de faire le T très discret. So her solution is to say the T very lightly, very discreetly.
As you can hear, French also has a uvular R, but according to the books, the rule still is to flip the R at the front of the mouth in singing. But about 10 years ago, one of the coaches at the Met had told me that people were starting to sing more with that uvular R. So I asked Natalie about this in a separate interview, and I wanted to be sure to include her remarks on that here as well. French people say the R in the back of their throats. Le R. Le R. Le R. Exactly. When you sing, do you sing that in the back of your throat or do you sing that in the front of your mouth? Il y a beaucoup de discussions sur le sur où chanter le R. Mm -hmm. Je le parle à l'arrière, évidemment. Je parle. There's a lot of discussion on where to where to sing this R. When you speak, you say it in the back, like she's showing. Dans le langage chanté, les gens sont pas sont pas d'accord. Il y a des discussions. Alors moi personnellement, pour un opéra sur une grande scène, je ferai des R roulés. Mm -hmm. pour les mieux. There's a lot of discussion, and some people say front, some people say back, but she prefers for an opera, especially to get clarity of the text, to roll the R in the front of her mouth. Voilà. Pour un lead, si on, on arrive en tant que francophone à le faire en arrière, c'est plus joli, c'est plus proche de la langue parlée. Yeah, so in, a, in a, a melody, it sounds more like spoken French if you sing the R in the back. Mais on peut aussi parfois le, le parler à l'avant pour faire un effet dramatique. But you can pull the R front to make something more dramatic. Dramatique. 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 <rire> Donc moi, quand je chante une mélodie en français, la grande partie des R, je les mets derrière, mais il y en a que je, je roule. When she sings a lead, most of the R she'll stay in the back, but for effect, she'll roll the mm. R's in the front. Mm. Our second text is Après un rêve, a poem by Romain Bussine based on an anonymous Italian poem. Après un rêve de Romain Bussine Dans un sommeil que charmait ton image, je rêvais le bonheur, ardent mirage. Tes yeux étaient plus doux, ta voix pure et sonore, tu rayonnais comme un ciel éclairé par l'aurore. Tu m'appelais et je quittais la terre pour m'enfuir avec toi vers la lumière. Les cieux pour nous en trouveraient leurs nues, splendeurs inconnues, lueurs divines entrevues. Hélas, hélas, triste réveil des songes, je t'appelle, ô nuit, rends-moi tes mensonges. Reviens, reviens radieuse. Revient aux nuits mystérieuses. That was Après un rêve, read by Nathalie de Montmolin. And what we didn't talk about in the first song, but I want to make sure and start with on this one, is the mute E, as she says, the E mute. At the ends of all these words, when she spoke it, she didn't say that mute E, but she would sing it. So talk to us about that. What, how would you sing it? Pour eux, il a composé des notes sur ces E muets. Donc je vais devoir les chanter. Donc quand je vais chanter, je vais euh, songe, mensonge, nuit mystérieuse. What she said is that Fauré actually wrote notes for these mute E's. So you have to sing that. A lot of composers in the French language set that mute E that's not spoken. Technically, that sound, when we do the phonetic, phonetics transcription, is a schwa. But what does it sound like? 
radiöse. Uh, so it's more. Uh, it's more. Uh, it's more like what we, if you think in German, more like an umlautish, uh, mm. an open. Uh. Mm -hmm. So you can also think in terms of uh, the open oe sound, the phonetic letter oe to, written together. Dans cette poésie, c'est toutes les, les finitions qui sont avec des e muets. Chaque fois à la fin, c'est un e muet presque. In this poem, every single sentence ends with this mute e. Dans un sommeil que jamais ton image ardent mirage. C'est chaque fois. Exactly. And so you hear that we transcribe that as a schwa, but you hear that it doesn't sound the same as the German schwa sounded, and it also doesn't sound the same as what we think of as uh, as a schwa. Uh. It's got a little more rounded lips to it. Mm -hmm. Okay, the other thing we need to talk about, and this is a great song to do it, is the nasals. We talked mm. a little bit about the e nasal, but we have also a nasal, mm. which starts the piece. Dans un sommeil. And then we get, we did, we did talk a little bit about the o nasal, but we didn't really talk about what it sounds like. Ton image. Mm. Yeah. L'ombre tombe. Tout au début, dans, dans un sommeil que charmait ton image, je révèle le bonheur ardent. Ardent, mirage. Ardent, and there you see that's okay. So the first word don is spelled D A N S. So A N becomes an A nasal. Sometimes also the E N mm -hmm. in the second in the second line, which is ardent. Ardent, A R D E N T. That E N T becomes an, an A nasal. Mm -hmm. Pour m'enfuir avec toi vers la lumière. Yeah, that's in the in the second verse. We have the second the, in the second line of the second verse. We have that E N again. Mm -hmm. À la fin, splendeurs inconnues. And then we have, yeah, we have the, the A nasal, followed by the E nasal in those two words. Oui, splendeurs inconnues, lueurs divines entrevues. And you can see that in divine, because there again that I, N is followed by the, the mute E, it's no longer the E nasal. If this word didn't have the E, S on it, divin, et divine. Exactly. So you have the if it didn't have the es, you have the e, the e nasal. But because it it does have the es, divines, and then we do again we do liaison, and that's because the same thing with splendeurs inconnues and divines entrevues is because it's an optional liaison after plural nouns connecting either with a conjunct conjunction or connecting to their own adjective. So you can see that. Unknown is the adjective connecting to splendors. Splendors inconnues. Mm, très bien. Hélas, triste réveil des songes. Songe is the, the O nasal. And in the, actually, in this next line, we get both the A nasal and the O nasal voilà. in one word together. Des mensonges. Please, so you can hear the difference between songe. So you hear A nasal to O nasal. This O nasal, is it more of an O, O, like a closed O sound, oui. or is it... On, quand, euh, quand on va le chanter, il ne faut pas le fermer trop, il ne faut pas faire trop on. Quand on va le chanter, il faut l'ouvrir un peu on, on. Il faut rester dans le on, mais il faut l'ouvrir un peu, sinon il n'y a pas assez de, de, de son. Yeah, so it, in the, when you sing it, it's, pro, it's better not to close that sound, mm -hmm. not to close too much to an overclosed closed because otherwise the sound doesn't come out. So what she's mm -hmm. saying is to leave a little more room, so a little opener. Et quand on chante en, il faut aussi l'ouvrir un peu. En, le faire clair. En, on. With the, with the a nasal, it's a little brighter and a little more 
a little, yeah, you can't see it, but I could see that the lips, her lips when she started were, were a little opener and then they closed a little bit more for the mensonge that the mensonge lips, that the front of the lips actually closed a little bit more quand, quand je parle on il est très à l'intérieur on on il est très sombre yeah. quand je vais le chanter il faut que j'ouvre un peu plus la bouche et que je l'amène un peu en avant de la bouche on on sinon on va pas l'entendre assez exactly so when she speaks the the o nasal it's very far back in her mouth but when she sings it she pulls it as far front as she can so that it sings better, just so that she doesn't get her voice stuck in the back of her throat. In A Présent Rêve, we also have a few liaison rules that we can go over. First, a compulsory liaison in the first words of the song, dans un sommeil. The rule here is that an adverb, conjunction, or preposition is required to make liaison with the following article, adjective, or noun. So you hear that the an retains its nasality, En, dans, but the S at the end of the word is connected to the article un, dans un sommeil. This rule also explains the liaison in the title of the piece, après un rêve. The exception to this rule is the conjunction E, which is spelled ET and means and. The T of E is never connected with anything that follows it. A forbidden liaison in this piece is in the second verse, between two complete clauses, liaison is forbidden. So we have tu m'appelais et je quittais la terre. Tu m'appelais means you called to me, which is a complete sentence with its own subject, verb, and object. And je quittais la terre means I left the ground, which begins a completely new clause with its own subject and verb. So connecting tu m'appelais zé would be forbidden. Now we're getting off our diction addiction for a little while. Many people ask me about coming over to Germany and how I got started over here. But rather than just tell you my story, I thought it would be more informative to talk with the man who literally wrote the book on the subject, Philip Shepard, author of What the Fach, the definitive guide for opera professionals in Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. The first edition was published in the summer of 2007, and it's now being reprinted in a second edition which comes out next month, mid-May of 2010. So, Philip, how did the idea for the book come about? It came about because, well, first of all, I was over here, and, you know, I had a lot of time to think on those trains to auditions and to gigs, and, you know, I'm not the first person to come up with this idea. I, I, back when I was in school, I bought the, that great book, uh, Kynox Baby. So that planted the seed, of course. And those ladies wrote a fantastic guide, which I probably haven't given enough credit to. But, you know, with all things, it became dated. Yeah. So I began thinking about it. And then, uh, and, you know, as people knew I was over here, I would get emails and more emails and more phone calls, which I'm happy to, you know, respond to and because that's how I got my start over here. But then I sat down one night with a uh, bottle of wine at one of my fest shops. <laughs> and I just, I wrote for a few hours and it turned into, oh, probably a 10 or 15 page guide. It grew and grew and grew, and finally I said, I should just really do this right. And it was a one-year project. Day and night, between rehearsals, after performances, days off, uh, project. Wow. All consuming. Well, what kind of information will we find in What the Fach? Well, my idea when writing it was to essentially 
hold a singer's hand, proverbially speaking, from the idea of coming over here uh, to actually getting a job and getting settled over here. You know, it's about 250 pages of information, starting with uh, what is it over here? What's the system like over here? Because it's not the same as in America or New Zealand or, or Britain or Canada. It's quite a bit different. And um, then going through, you know, going through the process, am I right for this? Is it something I want to do? Am I ready to do it? If I'm ready to do it, what do I need to do for preparation with languages, with repertoire, with my technique? And then actually putting pen to paper and contacting people over here and making arrangements, everything from travel and lodging to residence permits to visas if you need them, and who to contact, agents and theaters, and how to do it and what it's like when you're doing it. I mean, there's a ton of information. And then you keep going, and then, I, then it really starts to get into detail once you actually do get a job. The bureaucracy, because this is social democracy over here, and there is a lot of bureaucracy, and you need to know how to, uh, how to navigate it. I didn't go too far in the first edition into what do you do when you settle down here, and that will be a little bit more in the second edition. And, um, you know, interviews with a lot of professionals, so you can take other people's word for it. You know, I interviewed you yeah. because you've been working in some really big houses, and uh, you see things from a little bit different perspective, and stage directors, and singers, of course, and then a phrase book and dictionary that's about 20 pages long and should encompass pretty much everything you'd need to survive, <laughs> hopefully, and, uh, and then an index. So it's, it's pretty comprehensive. Great. You, you had actually mentioned that the, uh, that the system over here is much different from in the States. Can we talk a little bit about the system in general, the FEST system? If you just compare it to, say, America, the paradigms are just completely different. And it's like comparing an apple and an orange. I, my opinion, and I have really strong opinions, is that uh, the one thing it has in common is it's called opera on both sides of the ocean, <laughs> on both continents. The system is different because in America, virtually all houses are not full-time opera companies. Right. You know, you go to a very uh, reputable uh, regional opera company, in America that has a budget of $4 million, and they may put on three or four productions a year, maybe 15, 20 shows a year, and that's an opera company in America. Here, you take a company like Staatstheater Darmstadt, right south of Frankfurt, they have 600 employees, probably a thousand performances a year. I don't know if they have two or three theaters, and they have a budget of 25 million euros, and it is a constant grind. Yeah. of performances. They pump it out. It's a factory. It's a machine. And yeah. So these are two different paradigms. I don't work at Stasiat.Armstadt. It's just a it's just an example. But there are a hundred of those in Germany, Austria and Switzerland. And I, I think the other thing to note is that the arts here are state supported, um, with very, very, very limited private financing. You're starting to see it a little bit, but it's pretty foreign to the folks here. It's a they think it's a right to have their city or, or state theater here and they don't need to support it outside of their tax money and in America it is hustling with development and the folks there really it's uh, there's a system of checks and balances you put out good art and you market it well and uh, you have a development department and a company that stands behind that product and it shows uh, at the bottom line when you aren't running the deficit at the end of the year and here you're going to get your money no matter what. 
Well, then the question would be, did you en do you enjoy more the contract work form of work in America, or did you enjoy more having a fest contract? Uh, not, not for the paycheck, because I know I do like having a steady paycheck, but, <laughs> but sort of just uh, on a daily basis. I'm going to answer that in a kind of roundabout way. I think that the fest system here, you can enter it in a lot of different levels, and a lot of your perception about this system depends on what level you enter into this system. If you're entering in in Pforzheim, which is perhaps the tiniest house in Germany, you're going to have a much different perception of if you're entering in at Bayerische Staatsoper in Munich. I think they're really hard to compare, but I think one thing to keep in mind is that there is so much going on in any theater, you name it, Pforzheim, in, in uh, Mannheim, in Karlsruhe, in Kaiserslautern, it doesn't matter where. There is so much going on in so many different genres, just, not just opera, but, but acting and ballet, and children's theater, symphony, that you have to sit back and think, how do these people keep an energy level up in a repertoire theater and the artistic quality up? And the reality is, well, you don't. Things are compromised. Things are definitely compromised, and you should know that on the front end of things. And now in America, you've got an opera company, and pick any regional company, you know, all the way up to the Met. The entire company gets behind the production that's going on at the moment. They're spending the entire month doing Carmen. Everybody's behind it. There's a high energy level because everybody's coming together, say for the first, second, third time together for the month, and they're working at an incredibly high energy level. Now imagine you work with that same group, that same cast, over 15 productions over three years. You're going to let your guard down. You're going to let your guard down. You're going to perhaps not come with everything at 100%. I like to think I never did, and I never have. And that's something that depends on your inner compass. Yeah, and well, just to go on with, with what you were talking about with the smaller ensembles and working that hard, I know in Fortsheim we had an ensemble, because I worked in Fortsheim for two years, we had an ensemble of... I believe 15 singers and we did nine productions a year and every mm -hmm. every production lasted for two years and that was operettas, operas, music theater and pretty much all 15 were in almost every show. If not every show, they were in at least seven of the nine pr productions and if you think four shows a week for an entire season plus rehearsing on top of that, it's a long year. It's a, it's a heck of a long year, and you really have to, you know, you have to be your own boss and set your own standards because nobody's going to do it for you, you know. Are you going to spend your entire career in four time, or are you going to buck up and, and do your own homework and move your way up and out of the test system? Um, well, I think you, Ellen, are an anomaly because <clears throat> you have incredibly high standards, and, uh, you know, you'll always be practicing. And those are things you have to keep up. Yeah, I don't think either of, uh, of us really wants to trash either system. I think there are good things to both systems. Is it, I really loved working in the States, doing contract work. I liked the travel, and I liked, like you said, being able to concentrate. The opera company gets behind each production. But I also do like having the stability of being in one place, getting to work with the same people. How do you feel about that? I, I liked it for a time. I did. I, I quit my best job this past year because I had enough guest work. And I quit because it was taking, it began to take more from me than I was getting, if that makes any sense. 
there's a great feeling of having stability in your paycheck. And it's really hard to make generalities because you're talking about the, you know, half of the opera in the entire world takes place in this three country um, fest system. So making generalities is really dangerous, but I'm going to try to make diplomatic generalities. Uh, when a singer takes home a steady paycheck every month, and you know you're going to take it no matter what, I have noticed sometimes that that fire or that that drive, it's a drive that's unique to an artist, it kind of gets half extinguished. It's, it's something you really need to be aware of when you're in a fast contract because, you know, we're human beings. We're fallible. And, <laughs> and uh, th there's only a certain amount of energy you can keep up when you're doing, say, five new productions a year and four revivals. Yeah. You are being worked like a, a horse, you know? And uh, you've really got to keep your, your eyes and ears open to that. It's not only just your voice, it's your, your, you know, your artist, artistic soul. Um, so I decided, I decided to uh, quit my fest job. I had a, with, on paper, I had a fantastic offer, but I was very disillusioned with the artistic leadership, and I don't think I was so interested in doing that repertoire with the same people I had done uh, 15 other productions in the past three years. It wasn't at the level I wanted to do that repertoire, and, uh, and I just wanted to move on. And so I, I started doing contract work, and I do. It's you know, it's maybe it's a it's a it's a a case of the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. But but uh, there's a higher energy level in a stagione system where everybody puts all their resources towards one opera. We've all been told that the big audition season here happens in the fall. My experience is that the big audition season happens in the spring here. Do you have any opinions on that? Well, I do. I mean, I've, I've done auditions in every month of the year, even August. The, the skinny of it is, I think it depends on the house, how much they have their ducks in a row um, with season planning and with financial planning. And that, you know, it's a little bit of a precarious situation because they're waiting on money sometimes from the city or the state to see what they can plan. Uh, and sometimes it's just organization, a question of organization in the theater. If you're starting out and you're thinking, okay, I want to come and I want to do a good fest job, you know, and I'm not with IMG and, or I'm not with Cami or, or, you know, a, a large uh, representation who can really help me make uh, 4A into large houses, then you might want to come early in the fall, September, October, to sing for a bunch of agents because it's not something that happens overnight. It happens, you know, over a period of weeks. And then the, the, the auditions really start, my experience has been in, you know, late October, November, and they just kind of, I can't say there's one season. I mean, everybody has different experiences, but as things become more precarious economically, I think that um, a lot of things happen, you know, starting in February, March, April, you know, I've got work in for the next season in July before, but it happens later and later. I think the most important thing, instead of trying to gauge the system or trying to second guess, instead put your, put your concentration uh, towards finding a large block of time to be here. Because outside, out of mind, and if you're in uh, you know, Cincinnati, Ohio, the agent 
from Munich isn't going to be calling you about an audition. You need to be over here. So six weeks, eight weeks, 10 weeks, 12 weeks, yeah. I would say. Well, how, how different is it working with agents over here than working with agents in the States? Is it better to have an agent in the States or is it better to, to come over here and look for German agents? Well, I guess it depends, and it depends also because if you're working with a, a, a manager in the States, you almost certainly working exclusively. I mean, I would strongly suggest you have a conversation with your manager over there. Do they really have contacts over here? And I mean, do they have personal contacts in the theater? That doesn't mean can they fax your stuff over, uh, because there is a lot of material going in and out of the artistic administration offices here. But do they have, if they have real contacts, then sure, why not use them? There are American uh, firms, even smaller boutique firms, who have contacts over here. If they don't, you probably do want to go the way of getting some different agents over here. And in, in general, they're not exclusive here. At least at the beginning, they're not exclusive, right? You can audition for a lot of people, and anyone can send you out. Yeah, they really aren't exclusive. Each agent's different. And some may be offended if you're working with another agent. Um, some may want you to be exclusive with them, and you kind of have to go on a case-by-case -case basis. But for, for my first four or five years here, I worked with half a dozen. Yeah, just to throw a little bit of diction into the mix now, completely off-subject. Um, you've been living oh, in, yeah. in yeah, Austria and Germany now for, what, five or six years? I came over uh, in January 2004. Yeah, you came out over exactly a year after I did, then. Yeah, yeah. How have your ideas about the German language or German diction changed? Is there, is there anything that you've noticed that you consciously realized was different? No, everything. <laughs> everything. First of all, it can be a really beautiful language to sing in. I'll tell you, there are some very specific things I noticed about German and a lot of ideas that have changed. They began to change when I, um, I think in my second season here, I started getting productions where I had to have, where I had to speak. And I would speak like this with many like climaxes, mm -hmm. melodic climaxes in a phrase, and that's just not how you do it. And man auf Deutsch redet man redet eigentlich ziemlich flach, mit einer hohen Punkt in der Phrase, with one melodic uh, high point. Yeah. Also, I caught, I caught so much flack at the beginning of my time here for my E's and my O's, they were too open. And maybe that was only a problem with me, but it goes to a bigger, it goes to a bigger issue. And that is, and it's something I really wish I would have concentrated on a lot before I came over. They're long and they're short vowels. And it changes the entire meaning of a word. It changes the word. Stadt, Stadt. Yes, I get caught on that one a lot. Stadttheater, Stadttheater, you know. And it changes uh, the meaning of a word. If I could say anything to anybody who's who's singing leader, who wants to sing German repertoire, um, go out and you can buy CDs of actors, German actors speaking Heine poetry or Eichendorf poetry or Goethe poetry, and just listen to them. Okay, let's get back to the to what the Fach. Um, some of some of our listeners probably already have the first edition. So what's I think you mentioned it before, but tell us again what's new and different in the second edition. Well, of course, all the numbers, you know, all the numbers, all the dates, all the the active web hyperlinks, all of those things are updated. It's expanded a little bit. I'm putting in more interviews, a few more interviews. 
there are a lot of little odds and ends I didn't I didn't put in the first edition, which you know in retrospect, one reads back through a year's worth of work and thinks, ah, oh, I should have put that in. I should have put that in. So I've made a list over the past few years, and those little things will be going in. Um, and then I think uh, two of the largest sections that will be going in that weren't in the first section. Well, the first one is more about where do you go after you're hired and you've got your residence permit and your apartment. And, and, and I've really, I'm still debating with it because it's not completely finished, but you know, I, I wrote the first edition after being here for three or four seasons and it has a certain tone to it, which I think is, it's a really, it's a generally optimistic and not too naive tone, um, which a lot of people comment on and I want to leave that. But I think it's also important to write about, and I'm going to write about this, how to use the FEST system to your advantage. And very specifically, because I, I really came here thinking there were going to be parades and flowers because the American tenor was coming. <laughs> and this isn't 1986, you know? Communism is pretty much gone. Right. And you're competing against everybody from Cubans to Romanians to, uh, to Chinese to Russians, to people from Tajikistan, to, to Uzbekistan, to Armenia, to you name it. And it's really important on the front end of things for a singer, for an artist, to have a kind of idea of how they want to make their journey into the FEST system, up through the FEST system, and out of the FEST system, and use it to your best advantage, so that your career has momentum when you decide to leave, and your artistic soul, above all else, is intact and stronger than when you showed up here. There's already a Facebook page for What the Fach, and you've just added Twitter. What kind of tweet? <laughs> what kind of tweets can we expect? Well, yes, I am tweeting. It's uh, you know, I never had before. In fact, I never even checked Twitter out. I always kind of thought it absurd, but it's actually quite interesting because you've got 140 characters put something worthwhile. Um, so often, at, at the least, it's, it's uh, you know, an interesting article. I do like to pass on articles for anything from, you know, about the artistic climate over here, the economic climate and how it's affecting the arts over here, to, you know, often I hear through the grapevine over here, so-and-so, such theaters looking for a conductor, looking for this type of a singer, um, and it's public knowledge. So it's not like I'm betraying anybody's trust. I'm happy to pass it along. What, when it first came out, What the Fach was an e-book, and it later became a paperback. Is it coming out in both forms now, immediately, or...? It's going to come out in a paperback. It'll come out in an e-book that you can read on your computer. We, we don't need Kindle, we can use... But that, I'll get the Kindle in a second. I'm going to do Kindle as well. Okay. Um, <laughs> there's so much technology, and it's amazing how it's changed over the past three years. Yeah. You know, there'll never be... Uh, the equivalent of having a book in your hand. So a paper book, a paperback is necessary. And that will certainly come out and be available on Amazon and, in, and all the bookstores. Um, an ebook, the difference is it has active hyperlinks to websites all over, a lot more than the book. So you can just click on them. And it also has embedded documents from things like um, information about the social system in different countries here to applications for a residence and work permit. It's an, an a printable phrasebook and dictionary. It's got all of that. And then we're going to add uh, a Kindle as well. 
And we just found out that you can download an app for your iPhone for Kindle, which is pretty cool. Oh my god. So we're going to make sure that you can um, get by the Kindle version and read it on your iPhone. And on top of everything else, you know, we've got three more years experience in this and we found ways to cut our costs significantly. And, uh, you know, I don't make my living from writing this book. It's just a nice hobby and it's good therapy. And uh, um, we're going to pass the costs on. Everything's going to be cheaper. Fabulous. I think, you know, I didn't want it. I didn't want it. Saw the first version for twenty four ninety five, but because of the uh, economic circumstances we had to, this second version will not be twenty four ninety five. It will be less, and the ebook will be less as well. Definitely. So you don't have to give a second thought when you're plunking down the money for it. <laughs> I'm, I'm very impressed, actually. Really? I am. I'm very impressed with that, that, that you're passing that along. Not a lot of people would do that. Oh, sure. Oh, come on. I don't, you know, you'd be amazed at, at how little you take home from each paperback copy. Yep. Everybody takes the cut. Yep. I'm not losing money. Yeah. And I'm certainly not, uh, you know, paying my mortgage with it. Yeah. But it's fine. Do we know exactly when it's coming out, or is there a way we can pre-order to Amazon? Or uh, the best way, the best way to find out is we have a website, and it's what dash the dash fach f a c h dot com. What dash the dash fach dot com, and there'll be information on there as well as on our Facebook uh, page and on Twitter. And I should probably also add, we wanted to figure out a way to give away a bunch of free books. We'll be doing that through Twitter. So if you follow us at, at what the Fach book, what the Fach book on Twitter, um, we're going to be giving away. Oh, I hope somewhere between a hundred or two hundred books. Wow, that's great. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much for being with us today, Philip. Thanks for having me on. Bye bye. We talked a little about what it's like for singers, but I also wanted to speak specifically to coaches who are interested in coming over here. As Philip said, I've been working in some really big houses, but I didn't start off there. I started off in two smaller houses in Germany, and like he said, your experience can really depend on what level you enter into the Fest system. There's usually less repertoire in smaller houses, but there's also less staff, just like for singers. In Würzburg and Pforzheim, the music staff really consisted of one head coach, one coach, and a ballet coach who sometimes helped out in a pinch. Otherwise, just two of us played almost everything, which was generally nine productions a season with performances at, at least four times a week. In Dresden, Frankfurt, and Dusseldorf, the repertoire is about 35 to 40 productions a season with seven coaches, so while there's more work, it can also be more spread out. In the States, if you get into the regional circuit doing contract work, you arrive at the company, play the piece you were hired for, and that's all, so you really concentrate on one piece at a time. In a large repertory house, you play whatever they need you to play, since they have several operas rehearsing all at the same time. I've jumped from Tosca to Enführung to Katja Kabanova to Siegfried all in the same week before. It can be really satisfying, and it can be really exhausting. And again, as Philip and I both said, it can be very difficult to keep your standards up under that kind of a schedule. The best way to handle it is to always have all your homework done as far in advance as possible, and have a daily warm-up that includes technique so that when extra rehearsals crop up or new pieces get thrown at you to sight-read, you can go into it as relaxed as possible. Also, pianists here can audition for agents the same way singers do. Standard rep for pianists includes The Marriage of Figaro Second Act Finale, 
Carmen Quintet, First Strauss, either opening of Elektra, opening of Rosenkavalier, or the Quintet from Zalome. And for a big ensemble piece, either the opening of Otello, the Falstaff Fugue, or the second act of La Boheme. It's not limited to this rep, but if, if you have these in your fingers, you'll be in good shape to start off. And that's it for today's show. If you want to find out more about Natalie and the book What the Fach, or if you have any specific questions or comments for me, Ellen Rissinger, go to the blog at thedictionpolice.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please go to iTunes and give it a high rating so that more people can find it and benefit from it. Thanks for listening, and to see what's coming next week, check out the blog or the Facebook page.